Hey, you're listening to TBB Talks, the podcast hosted by the British Blacklist, where we bring you conversations with creative black folk from the UK and wider diaspora. We'll be talking to up and comings, headline popping, and the legends across screen, stage, literature, and sound. And we hope to shed some insight into their lives, the careers they chose, how they stay motivated, and more importantly, how they keep sane being black in the arts and entertainment world. I've said to my friends, I'm exhausted and I'm exhilarated in equal measure at the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like up, 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 and then I need to lie down. Please forgive me for this, because like, I realized, like, I was thinking about this, and like the first time I became aware of you, because I'm relatively new in the industry myself, I suppose, five years new. But it was in Talawa's King Lear, I do believe. Yes. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I loved working with those people. That was a lovely job. We were really comfortable in that production. Yeah. Mike just gave us, you know, he said, I'm, I'm just going to set it in ancient Britain and you're all going to wear lovely fake fur and look like you're in Game of Thrones and let's just have a ball. It was just really And I love I love Shakespeare. I love I love playing characters that are that eloquent, that have words at their command. That's exactly what we're talking about all the time. That words are just there. They don't search for anything. Because mm. if you're searching for stuff in a Shakespeare play, a three-hour play becomes five hours. So the words just have to be there. Which I think is really good because you have to think on the word. Because if you don't, the plays get too long. Mm. And they're long enough. So you have to think as you speak rather than ruminating for a bit and then something coming up. Thank you. I'm forever looking for extra things to add to my craft. So I appreciate that very much. I do believe that when you're in the moment, you have to let it all go once you've done all the work and just be there and see what happens, you know? You. Hi. Hello. How are you? I am so well. I'm a bit sort of headless chicken at the moment. It's nice that there's so much interest in Anthony, right? So so I'm Stay on top of, of all the Zoom meetings. They're so easy to miss. You're eating your lunch and you should be on a Zoom meeting. So all day I've been thinking, right, what time? And I kept checking, three o'clock, three o'clock, three o'clock, just in case I missed it. I, I started to panic. But apart from that, I'm trying to keep breathing. I'm trying to count my blessings and to remember how, even though a lot of actors aren't working, a lot of creatives aren't working, there's a reason to be busy and I'm grateful for that. I can feel your energy from here. In terms of the way success has been working for you, at least in my eyes for you, has it been easy to find happiness and peace in it? That's a beautiful question. A lot of happiness and peace is the simple answer to your question. I've also found um, a lot of frustration and a lot of disappointment. That's because... And I don't even mean it's because of jobs I didn't get. That's actually not, once you, once you get used to not always getting the job, yeah. that doesn't hurt your soul in the way it does in the early years. There still might be some role that will come up that, that you, you crave in a way you haven't craved the 10 before it. Mm-hmm. But I certainly don't adhere to the, an actor's job is to deal with rejection. I, hate, I, I can't bear it when I hear that. That's not my job. It's not my job to deal with rejection. I deal with it the way that nurses and doctors deal with the negative side of their job, but that's not their job. Yeah. Their job is to make people better and send them home. Mm. You see what I mean? Yeah. The opposite is not their job. Um, so it's not my job to deal with rejection. I just am able to deal with it. 
So that brings with it its own cloud when it does. But I, but I deal with that very well now because it's part of the thing. And, and I really do believe that uh, the job I'm doing is hopefully wonderful. And it's the job before the next job. Yeah. Or the job I've just done is the job before the next job. But the frustration has come from things not going as well as, as you would hope. And the analogy I use for that to help people that aren't in the profession and don't know what, what that means. Mm. If you're on a cruise ship, if you're working on a cruise ship, you might be behind the bar, you might be the person that cleans the cabins, you might be up there with the captain, you might be down in the engine room, wherever you are, you do your job as well as you can. That's, that's the idea. You get the job and you do it as well as you can. However, however well you do it, has no bearing on whether that cruise ship makes it to Canada. And so when you're cleaning those cabins till they gleam and you look out the window and you see an iceberg, you go, ah, we're going down. I just cleaned that toilet really well, but we're going down. And there's nothing I can do about it. I can't do it with you. I get it. I get it. And, and, and it's very like a cruise ship in that you you can't leave. I mean, that's, I mean, you can. People do walk off jobs and go, you know, I've had it here. Generally, we don't. Generally, we, because, because of the people we're working with. So we're not going to leave them. Yeah. So if you're on a cruise ship, you can't leave. Mm. All you can do is, you know, I just need to check out where the lifeboats are. I just need to know the quickest route to the lifeboat because we're not going to make it. And it's a shame because when we boarded, we were full of hope and positivity and energy. And we thought, this is the one. Yeah, this is the one. This is the, this is the series that's going to run for the next seven years. This is the play that's going to get its West End transfer and its Broadway transfer. This is the TV show that's going to get all BAFTAs. And then you're making the thing and you go, wow. Okay. Where's the lifeboat? Because all I can do is make sure that I survive. As this thing goes down and down and down, I just need to be able to survive. So that's, uh, that kind of thing upsets me because I can, I can berate myself when I don't feel I've done my job well. And then I feel, I feel bad for the people around me because I haven't supported them as much as I'd like to. But when I feel like no matter what any of us have done, then there's always a reason. And it might be that, hey, listen, it might be that the captain of the ship, the director actually didn't get it or that it was just too big, that vessel was just too big for them. It might be that the different departments just didn't come together in a way that made the whole work, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm sort of taking this whole thing to the nth degree, but over the years, I get really frustrated, and, and if, especially if I can see where we could plug a hole. The thing about steering the ship and knowing what, you, knowing what would be better, things like white writers on black stories, for example, you didn't choose them for that ship. They were on the ship already. Because I was looking into Anthony and who wrote it. So the, the, the G. Walker, known Jimmy McGovern mm-hmm. for years. I mean, they're, they're not making that up at all. They have known each other for years and years. And when she decided, and this came from her, when she decided that she wanted Anthony's name to be out there and, and Anthony's story to be told. And mm-hmm. she wanted, she just wanted his memory to live on. She went to Jimmy McGovern. So Jimmy McGovern didn't go to her and say, oh, and tell your story. She went to him and said, I want you to tell my story. And he actually thought that she wanted him to write a book. 
But he said, yes, anyway. So then she said, no, I want a TV program out of you. And he said, okay. So I absolutely hear what you're saying. I really do. But when you've got the mother of the boy we're talking about and she chooses the writer, I don't feel like any of us have the right to say anything. Yeah. When I read the script, I was full of the same questions. I was full of, I mean, I love Jimmy's work and I've loved his work telling the Hillsborough story and, and all this other this fictional stuff, this non-fiction stuff. And I've, I've loved his approach to the work. My first question to my agent was, please tell me that G. Walker has been involved in this in some way. And then when I met our director, Terry, I said, please tell me G. Walker was involved. And he said, it was her idea. That's why we're here. Because, yeah, that's, it also answers the question of the concept of how you feel about representation in terms of our stories. But that makes entirely perfect sense in this cohesion to it. I am fortunate enough to have been born into a time period where my experiences and exposure to overt racism has been minimal. You think about it and you realize that there are tacit exposures to it, regardless whether you like it or not. But the problem is, and I do, I get this to some extent because we teach it in economics that whatever decisions you make economically, a future generation will pay for at some point. And this is the catch up point it seems to be happening at the moment for generations, the whole world before us. It makes sense because I always ask this question, like, if you could go back in time, where would you go? And I'm always like, oh, there are loads of places I would go, but just not as myself. Make me a white man, then I can go anywhere. <laughs> but, you know, so I get it. And there's something really beautiful about the fact that she was like, you're the person I want to tell my story. And I know that her, hers is just, who will tell my, my son's story for me? So in a way, it's actually an example of, the utopian sort of world I would look for. You're absolutely right, I think. And she's, she's talked about this a lot because they've been asked this question a lot. And so she's been really vocal and said that over the years, once their relationship got going, and I, I don't quite know how they met, but over the years, they've spent a lot of time together. And I think when she's had fundraisers for the Anthony Walker Foundation, Jimmy goes along and our producer Colin goes along and she and she said this to me personally because we, we were doing a joint interview with Tahib and Jimmy yesterday and afterwards G and I just stayed on the Zoom just the two of us just had a chat for 10 minutes I haven't spoken to her since since the shoot and she said you know they have really been there they've really they've turned up and and bought tables at events and and donated money and when Jimmy's wanted to talk to someone for research purposes. She's been happy to talk to him about grief and forgiveness. So then she turned around to him and said, I now have a favor for you. Yes. yes. Um, uh, I'm asking a favor of you and, and this is what it is. And it's, I don't think, I don't think she even thought who could do, I, and I'm, I'm putting words in her mouth, but I don't think it was a case of, shall I have that writer, that writer, that, or that writer? She just said to herself, I personally know one very good writer, so I'll go to him. And I know that he's done things that people have watched. I know that network television have faith in him. You know, I, I don't think it occurred to her that she might look for somebody else or that she might look for a black writer. I think she just thought, I know a writer. And I wonder if he'd said, no, sorry, G, I'm not the person for that job. I wonder what would have happened. Maybe he would have, yeah, I don't know what would have happened. Maybe he wouldn't have gone anywhere then. She'd have thought, well, okay, that's not meant to be. I think you're right. It is the u utopia. And it's, I think we have to be really careful. My, my goodness, I'm as vocal and as desperate for change as anybody. 
I just think we need to be careful to put our energy in the right place. And going for Jimmy McGovern as the writer of Anthony Walker's story, mm. I believe is putting our energy in the right place. I know what we're saying going forward. I absolutely do. But I feel like we've, we're all so tired. We just need to be really careful. He's not the enemy. But it's a tricky one because I know why we're doing it. And I know why people are saying it. In fact, the other thing that G said to me during our conversation, and I, I'm sure she wouldn't mind me sharing this as well. She said, 15 years, I have not had any black writers knock my door. She's not had anything to do with any writers other than Jimmy McGovern. She went to the man she knows and trusts. It's hard to hear. I no, think. No, no, no. I'm not like, I'm not sitting here going, oh my God, because I do get it. We want to work with people who we know, we trust, yeah. you know, and that is beyond colour, let's be honest. My head's full of analogies and I'm never sure if anyone will understand them. But the one that came to me just then was, don't assume because we're all on this cruise ship that we can all swim, right? Yeah. I'm not sure if that at all says what I'm trying to say. I always think of a, a story I read years ago about, um, uh, I think it was an American, I think it was football, a football team. And the majority of the players were African-American. And the, the owner of the team, his wife, was going to have some dinner around at their house and invited some of the African-American players. And the owner went, oh, God, no, don't invite them. And that's always really stuck with me. You kind of think, hey, I've got all these black players in my team, so I'm open to everybody and everybody's my friend, right? Nah, not at all. And, and I'm not, I realise I'd better just clarify. Jimmy McGovern is amazing, so I'm not talking about him. But don't think that I'm not aware that I've been on other jobs. Hey, look, we've got this massive black cast or we've got this central black lead. And, and at full stop, that's the end of that story. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so you stand at the lunch table and you're getting your salad. You know, they've, they've told you the food's ready. And you have all these people standing around looking at you like, why are the support artists starting on food? Oh my gosh, do you know what? As in, I had that experience on a recent job and it was like, oh my gosh, I was in a, on this job in South Africa and literally the caterers were like, if you're black, you must be a supporting artist. I was number two on the call sheet. I had to literally lay down law for them, which annoyed me because I'm like, I don't want to be having this diva energy just because I'm stressed, hungry, and I'd like to eat something before I go to set to do my job. Yeah. And there's nowhere to take that, really. There's nobody to talk to, unless it's overt, because then it's just a case of, oh, well, we don't know everyone on the set, so we made a mistake. But you go, yeah, but this mistake happens every single set I go on. And it is exhausting, these, these tiny, and, and they happen. They happen all the time on sets, and it's hard to call it out. That guy looked at me funny. It's like, it's really hard. There's a big conversation at the moment, thank goodness, about hair and makeup. Yes, thank God. Oh, 30 years I've been doing this job and I can count on two hands the number of hair and makeup designers who genuinely knew what to do with my hair or knew, knew the, the terms to use in a conversation about my hair. And I'm so used to it happening that I just expect it to happen. So now to have my agent saying, has that ever happened to you? And I'm like, wow, how long have you got? 
I tried to have that conversation with the makeup designer. Have you got someone that, you know, do you know how to, to do my hair? Oh yeah, 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 they say. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I go, oh, okay, good. And then I get there and their version of yes means I've got someone who's happy to have a go. And it's seven o'clock in the morning and you've got a days full of filming and you think whatever decisions we make now, we're stuck with for continuity reasons. So I, there's nothing I can do now. The decisions we make, at 10 past seven this morning, I'm gonna to have to live with for the next six weeks. It's so unacceptable. Whenever I have a makeup artist who knows what they're doing, I take notes like I'm in their freaking makeup school. I'm the one like writing it down, red is good for camera. Why didn't no one tell me that before? And then having to explain that to someone, I said, so I'll need this little kit of red and all these shades of red and orange. And then people sort of slapping it on, like, oh no, you do know that you're gonna to have to like, you then have to put Lens. The other over the top is a bit thick. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Nowadays, I always look into the MUA before I even go on set on IMDb just to be like, what kind of stuff have you done? Oh, I see all my casts. Interesting. And so the first thing I did once I got on set was, can you just show me who the MUA is? And then just like smile and be like, hello, nice to meet you. Oh, it's like, I hope you don't mind. I'm just, I'm so like hundred and pedantic about everything I do in life. So I was just curious what your plan was for my makeup. Do you mind if we just go through it together? I've got my oh. makeup with me just so we can have a play. Because like you said, once you stick it, it's set. What kind of response do you get to that? Well, because I'm doing it in that big smiley way, <laughs> they're just like, okay, yeah, cool. So when we're then sitting there and I'm like, no, we're definitely using this on the outside. And if you don't use it, I can show you. If you like, I can just do it the first time so you know what it might look like. And then, you know, because you're there thinking it's too thick, but I know how to use it to make it not look thick because I know my skin and what we're going to do. So ultimately, they can see that I'm not going to back down until we get a balance. So we get there. You know, but it's like, I just feel like as if nowadays it's like, or at least this is what I'm trying to do because I'm like, how do you get rid of all these, these intangibles on set, these things that you can't explain because no, everyone's like, oh, well, it's not a big deal, but actually it really is. Because it comes down to, I don't know. And it doesn't matter that I don't know. It doesn't matter that there's nobody in the makeup room that actually knows it doesn't matter that there's no one uh, on the, that our lighting designer, our DOP doesn't actually know. We don't expect to know how to light you. We don't expect to know how to make you up. We don't expect to know how to do your hair. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. I love what you do, actually. The times when I've been really strident about it, I've had some really lovely human standing behind me with tears in her eyes. And I'm like, you know what? Don't worry about it because I don't need, because you've worked with this crew before, because this is series 10. And while I'm acting my little butt off over there, people are going to be asking why you're crying and it will be my fault. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, it's true. I've had an artist blubbing because I was asking questions that she couldn't answer. What? You know, there was no raised voices. There was no, it was just a case of, she was doing that thing. You know when people get hold of your braids in a way that they think they're going to come off in their hands. So then they, they put them up in a bun or whatever, and it's just not up. And it feels horrible when people gingerly grab hold of your hair like that. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. I've had a woman on a, in a HMUA, she took one of my natural hair curls. I could see her looking at the thing for like about 10 minutes, like as if, wow, what sort of alien is before me? And she took the curl and she pulled it because she was just like, oh, how fast is it? She's just pulling, pulling my hair. 
pulling my hair until I was like, excuse me, sorry, that hurts. And she's like, oh, sorry, as if she forgot they were attached to a human head. It's got to stop because I think the agents are on top of it now. So I think that the plan is that the agents will start to ask at their end, is there somebody? And I know that my agent asked just a couple of weeks ago, is there somebody who can do my client's hair? And they went, um, well, not specifically, but what are his concerns? And she said, well, his concerns are who's going to do his hair? <laughs> do you know I mean? And this idea that we're happy to go off and, and sit for hours to get our hair done, absolutely. But you know what? That's the day's work. Because it's the day when I can't be doing radio play. So I'm working for you. I'm only getting this done for you. Pay me. Need to pay me, not just give me the, like, or give me the receipt and I'll give you the money. Pay me for that day in the chair because everyone else is getting their hair cut on set. I'm going to bring it back to you because I just want to quickly finish with you stuff. Noughts and Crosses and Anthony, I imagine both of them, I hope, <laughs> you had people behind the camera who are much more understanding of the concept of what being black needs on set. Or was there still some, some things that uh, still needed to... There are still some things. There are still some things. So, Noughts and Crosses was shot in Cape Town, which brings its own challenges. However, in terms of hair makeup, there were... I loved going into that makeup truck and seeing women hairdressers in their braiding hair, making it into the most extraordinary shapes just doing their thing in the truck on company time mm. that's kind of all i'm asking for and we don't quite have that set up here yet not yet so with noughts and crosses you're in cape town but most of the people behind the camera are still mm. white you just have more people doing catering that are black than you would have here <laughs> So, you know, in terms of the HODs, in terms of the, the people at the, the decision makers, let's call them. Yeah, yeah. Most of the decision makers were white, white, even on Noughts and Crosses. Not all of them, not all of them, some of our producers. But, but once you were on, on set, you looked around and went, oh, yeah, okay. Well. Yeah. And I feel unacceptable treatment of support artists and possibly worse in Cape Town. No, definitely worse. But, so that bothers me greatly. It's really tough because I'm so used to it not being the ideal that I've gone to a place where it will never be the ideal and I look forward to walking onto a set where the only black face isn't just the sound man or the sound woman. I don't know what it is about sound. I feel like of all the departments, the sound department is the one that's gone, you know what, come do this. The other departments haven't quite gone there yet. The weird thing about being on a set is when there are women on set, Particularly when they're with the camera crew, they seem to have gone to a place which is, I'm a woman in a very male environment. I hope you don't mind, but I can't do the woman to woman thing. So I'm not going to talk to you at all. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, wow, I, I don't, I'm trying to reach that, that woman over there with the clapperboard and I, she just won't catch my eye. <laughs> we must really invest in people and time and so if we're going to bring people in as apprentices we can't then drop them like a stone and wonder why they're not making the next award-winning movie we have to persevere and keep up with their training as we would anybody else's rather than you know come join us for six months and then off you go i think it's so important that when we take on anyone as a sort of mentee we keep up with them almost to the point where their name has its own power and can do its own thing. And even then, 
I suppose Dee and Jimmy is a great example of this, a relationship that has been in years of development to yes. the point where you can just say, you're writing my, my son's story. And it's, there's no, almost no question to it. That's the kind of beauty of that relationship that would be so wonderful to see emulated in our community. When I was watching Anthony, it blew my mind how soft, not soft in terms of like uh, doormatty, but soft in terms of soft strength you had, especially with your children in that which is not the typical representation of the African mothers on our screen <laughs> or in our life. There, there are a generation of black women who they don't get written about, they don't get talked about. They are quiet. Their strength is quiet. And they're, they're kind of the, I mean, G is younger, but they're the sort of Windrush generation, I'm going to call them, that group of women. And maybe the reason we don't write about them is because they're not the loud and sassy. They have a wisdom, but it's not that kind of sat at the top of the hill in a rocking chair wisdom, you know, with the sort of deep African-American voice and everything they say, just incredible. She's not that woman. She's not the loud and sassy woman. And I can't help thinking that this is slightly before, and no, it's, it's probably the generation before G's, but I feel like, the children of those women were embarrassed by them. Because th th that's a group of women who fought and strived just to get food on the table. You know, they came over, they were treated like dirt, but they got their qualifications and they then went on and did whatever and, and fed their children. And they did all their fighting yeah. to support their children. But then when their children were old enough, their children went, mom, why don't you fight? And they're like, all I've done is fight. You just haven't seen it. Yeah. But we didn't write about them. Mm. We didn't talk about them. And suddenly we wondered where all these, even in, in sort of television for years, black women in Britain just weren't represented. And even now, we know what granddad sounds like. We know what dad sounds like. We know what the son sounds like. We know what his girlfriend sounds like. What does his mother sound like? What does she say? What interests her? Even mm. her daughters don't know. I've had this conversation with friends of mine and we're like, we have... Because when we write stuff and we share it, this, you know, going back just a few years, we're writing stuff and we're sharing it and we're going, well, look at us, the weakest character we've written is the mother. We don't actually know what the mother ever says to anything. Yeah. The mother's always there quietly just observing stuff. She doesn't speak. What we need to do is we need to go, okay, if she is that woman who's too tired to speak, who's letting stuff happen or quietly throwing in her opinion on things, let's really get inside her head. Have you watched I May Destroy You? The extraordinary Michelle Greenidge plays Michelle's mother in it. And at the end of uh, this particular sequence in, in the mother's house, camera just stays on Michelle. And we just are allowed to imagine what she's thinking. It isn't said. And I thought that's perfect because Michaela is throwing darts at all kinds of things. And for me anyway, I thought I love that she's kind of saying, oh yeah, this is the woman who we don't allow. I mean, she does speak in it obviously, but just as you expect the mother to come into the room with a lot to say about what she's just heard, she says nothing because that's who this woman is. She internalizes everything. And whereas normally we wouldn't stay on her face, we'd, we'd be off with the dad and what the dad thinks. Michaela's gone, no, I'm gonna leave you with her. And she isn't going to speak because she doesn't. But I'm not going to get bored with that fact. I'm going to leave you to just think about why that is. Why is she not speaking? 
I find what you're talking about so glorious because I consider my mother to be one of those women. Not necessarily Windrush, but in terms of this concept of, I feel like she has deserved the silence that she has now in terms of just a look because all that work has been done. So you know what she means, even without saying a word. It's mad. There's something you said that was so beautiful where you were like, we don't know who they are. And I was just thinking to myself, I'm so privileged and lucky that in the last five, six years of my life, I've started to actually meet my mother properly. Actually, oh. the woman that she was before me and is still. But it was like, wow, you were this whole person before me. You were a whole person. And we don't get that privilege, especially, I think, as African children in general, because our mothers have this huge job to make sure that we are at least correct enough to be well-spoken and all that nonsense in this world where they know what it means to, to what it takes to get ahead yeah. as a black person. So like when I was watching Anthony, the scene that hit me the most wasn't even your grief because that killed me, but it was like, I love truth, just truth, no extra, no, you know, comedy, even in comedy, there's an element that should be just truth, not over-exaggerated, you know, but it was when he was, worried he wouldn't get the law uh work the legal work experience and he just sat with him he said well you yourself all yourself and you'll get it there was weight in what you said when you said that you'll get it i believed it i was like he will get it not because the story was like some beautiful representation of what his life could have been so therefore of course he'll get it but actually because no because i know that's something my mother would say to me be true God bless you, Queen. Oh, wonderful people. Thank you so much. Bye. 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 Bye.